So welcome to the Inclusion Solution Live podcast from the Winters Group. On this season of our podcast, we'll be taking a deeper intentional dive into the chapters of the Winters Group's new book, Racial Justice at Work, Practical Solutions for Systemic Change. My name is Gabby Gonzalez, and I'll be serving as your host for today. Um, I'm excited to be in the studio with our contributing authors, Kevin A. Carter and Samra Subramanian. Um, we'll hear more about their chapters and their work in just a moment. Um, now, you know, here at the Winters Group, we like to disrupt the daily grind by checking in with each other before diving straight into the work. Um, so with that in mind, I'd like to invite both of you to, you know, just check in. Let us know how you're doing. Like, Kevin, how are you doing today? I, I am doing uh, very, very good. Um, excited to be here. I'm excited to have the conversation. Great. Thamra? Me too. I, I, it's the end of the week, so Friday is always a good energy for me. And I'm feeling more energy than I did throughout the rest of the week. So very excited to have this conversation. Good. Same, 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 same. Bringing that Friday energy. Um, okay. So Kevin, you wrote chapter six on anticipating resistance and chapter seven on addressing resistance. I mean, Thamara, you wrote three chapters of the book. Today, we're going to focus on your chapter 15, um, make a difference with your DEIJ data, a four-step process. Um, so Kevin, if you could start us off just by telling listeners a little bit about your why for writing your chapter uh, or both of your chapters, um, or it could be like, you know, how it relates to effective organizational change, um, specifically when it comes to diversity, equity, and inclusion work. Yeah, I, I mean, uh, essentially, diversity, equity, inclusion, and justice work is a change management process. Um, and like any change management process, there's resistance. Um, and people are going to resist for a variety of reasons. You know, maybe I'm not sure what my role is going to be in this change. Maybe I feel uncomfortable about my uh, capability in terms to bring about the change. Maybe I just don't agree with the change. There's going to be resistance. Um, that's going to be true of any change. With uh, respect to our work, it's also emotional. Uh, people have their personalities vested in, into it. Um, it can also be polarizing, you know, as we see in the country. So my chapter is this idea, how do we both um, really, really um, anticipate and then address that change so that you can actually, um, you know, center justice um, and you can foster equity for a variety of people. If you don't do that, what we found is if you don't anticipate that change, um, then you're probably not going to get the result that, that you want. You're not going to be successful because uh, the initiative is so emotional. It can be so polarizing. 100%. Now, given that, so what are some common forms of resistance to DEI work that, you know, listener, listeners can anticipate? Yeah, they could be as, you know, and I mentioned some of them, they could be as um, range from, I just don't know what to expect. And anytime anyone doesn't know what to expect, they're going to resist. Uh, it could be, I don't know what my role is in this or my ability to bring it about. And so with that, they're going to resist. It could be, I have a misunderstanding of what this is about. It's going to cause a loss for me, a loss of security for me, a loss of maybe employment for me, a loss of professional development opportunities for me. And so any of those will put you at a position of, I don't see what this is, is I don't see what's in this for me, and therefore I will resist it. And as soon as people aren't aware of the need for the change, or they don't have a desire um, to uh, engage in the change, kind of talking a little bit about that ad car stuff in, that's in the chapters, then the change won't be successful uh, because change is not organizational, it's individual. 
and you need a variety of individuals to own up uh, own up within an organization to make it happen. So helpful. Thomer, anything you would add to that based on your experience as well? Yeah, I would say that similar to what Kevin said with resistance showing up in different ways, one of those ways that we've seen it show up a lot is resistance to data data being both quantitative and qualitative and how people perceive things that they hear about their workplace. So that's something that Kevin and I have been working on a lot lately of how can we make a system and a process that's both equitable in how we do it and also equitable in like what we share. Either of you, I don't know if you could share about a time when you were a client were able to successfully address resistance. Like how did you or, or they bring it about or bring about that turning point? Yeah, you know, I, I think back to, you know, um, one client and Derma and, and I share this story a lot. Um, and it, it was, uh, we were talking about um, dominant culture theory. We won't go into the details of that, but but it was, but it was the idea where, um, where literally um, people of color, um, maybe any marginalized group could always feel like they need to be perfect. It's not good enough to continuously improve, but you need to be perfect. And so we were talking about this concept and then uh, there uh, happened to be um, a white gentleman who was a part of, of the session who said, well, I, I feel this push to perfectionism all the time. This isn't just about, you know, people of color. It is, you know, as a white male, you know, I experience it too. And then on that same call, a woman of color said, now imagine if you feel it all the time, if it's, you're expected to perform in this way all the time, um, and purely because of your race and gender. And at that point, the gentleman got it. And he was like, wow. Um, and, and, and you need to do that in this work where you've got to help people see that, um, that this impacts them too, and many times impacts them negatively. And at that point in time, after that, we had a chance to really talk about, so how do we, how do we foster equity for everybody, particularly for marginalized group? So that, that's kind of one of those examples where his initial, his initial resistance was, I don't really believe in this concept because you're saying it's unique to one group and I feel it too, but he got the nuance. He understood the nuance. Oh yeah, the nuance, that's so important. Damar, any um, experiences that you, you wanna share? I was gonna say, share the same one <laughs> yeah. and thinking about the real connection that this guy made and many people in the session did who are white or have dominant identities was that when you do center those most impacted and actually focus on issues such as what are those dominant cultural patterns mm -hmm. how does racial equity show up you're actually creating mutual benefit for everyone um, and that recognition and getting to that phase of dei work is really powerful and transformational uh, that one, we can pivot to your chapter. Um, I don't know if you could share a little bit about your why for the listeners and just how it relates to this work. Sure. Um, so post George Floyd's um, murder in 2020 and prior to that as well, um, we saw a giant influx in people wanting to make a stance on racial justice, racial equity, whatever social justice type work that organizations were doing at the time. Um, and we realized a lot of these organizations have a lot of data um, or maybe don't even collect the right types of data to make the statements and claims and actually create actions to change the organizations from the system upward. 
Um, so my my chapter is a deep dive into our equity audit process. So from aligning with the client to finding robust ways of collecting data as well as analyzing data um, in a way that is comprehensive and also centers justice at every step. So the entire chapter goes through that in much detail, mm -hmm. um, but really focuses on what are those little things that go beyond, oh, we're just collecting data and analyzing it, but it shifts from analyzing to really interrogating and asking questions about why we're even doing this and what we're even looking for. So really being able to, instead of just saying, this is how it is, we can say, let's unpack that. This is the root cause of what is happening. Oh yeah, I, do, yeah. do you have any specific examples or like, you know, what are some common misconceptions around like how to collect and use data to inform DEI strategy? Yeah, um, so one of the first things that I'd noticed in the work was um, how much quantitative data can be pretty limiting for people. So for example, a lot of clients shared that they wanted to reach a benchmark or thought that they had achieved X status across their industry. But then at the end of the day, none of the industries were doing that great anyways. So either this caused them to feel like they're doing a great job and continue doing something that might be harmful or cause them to not do anything at all. So meaning, I don't need to do anything, we're fine in this area. Um, so really shifting away from just trying to compete with other organizations and actually looking at internally, what are the cultural patterns? What are the practices that may be causing harm? That's one area. And then I would say the second big um, example I'll, I like to give is uh, we were working with a client a few years ago that um, shared that there were some issues with their healthcare system. Um, and how patients were responding to certain amounts of care. But then when they looked at um, patient data, there was not much there to tell them any story. They were really struggling with, well, we do have people of color here. We do have white people here. We're not really sure what the issue is, yet we still have unhappy patients. Then we realized if we went and looked into their patient um, kind of testimonial cards, so when you leave the hospital, you leave a how your session was. We found a ton of qualitative data on um, gender identity and how um, people at the clinic were being addressed by their pronouns or not by their pronouns, mm -hmm. being a huge point of contention. And because LGBTQ data or gender identity related data is typically not something that is collected in demographic data for organizations, it was really hard not to see that data until we were able to mm -hmm. get that testimonial and see, oh, hey, this is actually the underlying issue. Um, let's talk about it. Let's see how we can figure out uh, what we can do with the healthcare professionals and some sort of training to learn more about gender and gender identity. Oh, that's great. So what are some other good sources of that qualitative data that you know organizations might not be might not be top of mind for them or something that they might need to implement? That's a really good question. Um, and Kevin, you can chime into this as well. We do a lot of listening sessions with employees mm -hmm. as well as interviews. 
with mm -hmm. leaders and other change agents at the organization. And we analyze that data through a couple different lenses. So that's one big way to get data mm -hmm. from employees. Another way and um, avenue that we take as well is looking at policies and the language of policies, looking at communications or even what they put out there on their web website, investor reports, any sort of public facing information has language, has context to what's going on around organizations and being able to see sentiment, even how people define diversity, equity, inclusion publicly for their organization um, says a lot and especially says more when you see this is maybe how it is publicly stated, but then comparing it to what people are seeing internally, is there a gap and what can we do to mitigate that? Yeah, I mean, um, Thelma nailed it in terms of, you know, discovery is what we call it, a stage of our work, is all about getting in both qualitative and quantitative. And so whether it's stakeholder interviews, you know, people, opinion leaders, whether it is employees in many cases who maybe had never had a voice, you know, in the process mm -hmm. or, or not heard in any kind of way, we are big believers. I always say, um, you know, getting um, top down, bottom up, outside in and inside out kind of information, both quantitative and qualitative. So we do a lot of that. And, and we, you know, I would say that's a, a unique aspect to that we bring to it. Not not just that we do the listening sessions, but I would say also the models that we apply to them and the analysis that we apply to it. Um, that's unique to our work. Um, in mm. the many years that I've been doing this, doing this work, the degree to which we try to give people voice and participation um, and bring that voice to the table to then create actions is quite is quite uh, important. It's integral to the work that we do, and I think is the reason why we're successful with the work that we do. No, that's great. Now, Kevin, you did mention that you referred one of the models earlier. I don't know if you could speak to that a little bit more. Mm -hmm. To, to let listeners know a little bit more about these models that, that help with that. Yeah, there's a, well, again, I, we mentioned like the dominant culture mo model, and I won't kind mm -hmm. of go into detail of it. Um, it's huge, you know, because there's a lot there. You're but, right. But, but this idea that there, the United States, as we all know, has some cultural values that date pretty far back in time that have a mix of uh, colonialism, has a connection to slavery, has a connection, all of it's kind of weaved in. Um, and and not and they're not always bad, but they can be in excess. So you know, I would always tell people in, in America we do believe in this idea of trying try hard. You know, you need to try harder. You need to try hard mm -hmm. because that that connects to continuous improvement, but it can also connect to perfectionism. And then what we find is that is sometimes sort of um, exaggerated as it relates to people of color, where it's not just try hard. You know, it is to be perfect. Um, another thing is, you know, in America, we tend to say, let's look to the future. Let's not look back. Let's look forward. You know, um, those kinds of things. Well, there's, 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 you know, um, there's a strength to that. There's, there's a, a rationality to that. However, the excess of that is, well, let's not look back to hear your concerns. Mm. Um, why, why can't you get past that? Why do we keep keep having to talk about that in the past? Uh, and so. We try to, uh, it's those kinds of models that we apply, you know, to that, which all of a sudden people go, oh, wow, I get how some of these traits are out of balance. Mm -hmm. And we're, and the out of balance is being applied specifically, literally to marginalized groups, to make them feel even more marginalized, make them not believe that um, the views, the experiences that they're having are really real. 
and then you know um, that's a theoretical way and then through the analysis that Dharma does when we look at a lot of that quantitative data it kind of syncs up you know where mm. boy, you thought this was the case and it's also showing up in not only qualitative data uh, but the quantitative data as well it's like you have a hunch and then now you have these numbers to back it up <laughs> exactly based on your lived experiences. So I, the thing that, what you mentioned about perfectionism, that really resonates. Like, why do you think that is? Why does that impact people of color more? Uh, well, you know, I, I, th I think um, uh, in our history, all of us have probably, and I say us, so I'm saying people of color, you know, as a person of color, I think part of the lessons that we have always had is um, be ready to be better than be ready to do better than, because anything that you do is going to be marginalized. My mother used to always tell me, um, do more, but expect less. Hmm. And, and think, about, think about that. She was telling me, so she was buying into the um, hard work because she was saying, do, you know, do more. But then she was also sort of, um, uh, um, sort of um, also laying on the reality of it is, but don't expect equality. Don't expect equity. Expect less. And 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 that's just been. I think that's the 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 written experience of people of color. That's the lived experience of people of color. Um, and, um, and and it's just it's a it's a question of our you know our existence here you know in the United States. For sure. Thamar, anything you would add to the to this conversation on perfectionism? It's really interesting because it's almost like that Kevin's mom was setting him up for not being disappointed constantly, uh. <laughs> and which is so real. And I think we're finally sort of, at least personally for me, I'm getting to the point of, you know, I've always had that same message as well, but setting yourself up for disappointment constantly is also very tasking and fatiguing. Uh. And I think we're seeing more of that show up. Um, in workplaces, outside of workplaces, and people are kind of done. Um, and I think a lot of what Kevin's sharing as well is, and I think we mentioned this a bit in the book as well, but um, dates back to slavery and cotton mills. And there were certain requirements every day for how much you were supposed to produce. Mm -hmm. um, and then once you met those requirements, you weren't good for the day. They would just <laughs> up, your, up your requirement for the next day. So it was mm -hmm. almost a never ending, I'm not good enough. Or mm -hmm. if I do succeed, it's still not going to be enough because mm -hmm. the next day I have to do more. Um, which, and that goes deep into our culture. Um, it really does. Shows I up mean, today, which is really, really fascinating. It gets internalized, and then you have to really make this conscious effort to say, you know, I I have to, I expect better, um, but it's like you have to like force yourself to think that way, right? Mm -hmm. um, well, no, thank you both. This has been a great conversation. Um, I want to definitely go back to your chapters, though. Um, so after reading your chapters, Kevin, what do you want readers to be able to walk away with, like, or be able to do um, with that information? Yeah, well, I mean, we apply um, a couple of models. Um, you know, I'll mention one, and, and it's sort of like a, um, we call it like a level theory. And a level theory says you, you want to engage in elements of change at the sort of the macro, meso, and micro level. And so we might say, so, so Kevin, what does that look like in reality? Well, in reality, the micro level is if this is polarizing, engaging, and Dharma said, you know, tiring work, how am I taking care of myself? 
You know, how am I fueling my own battery? You know, what's the network around me? What's the encouragement around me? Um, how am I eating? How am I exercising? Um, what kind of psychological help am I getting? Because it, it's going to take a toll on me. So at the micro level, you've got to realize this is going to take a toll on me. How am I preparing myself? At a micro level, you've got to say, well, this is going to take a toll on other people emotionally, psychologically. How am I helping them out? And this is, that's, this is really kind of important for practitioners because sometimes we want to go so fast um, because it's such the right thing to do and we're so passionate about it but we've got to tone into the micro. Uh, sort of this meso level is, this has really got to make sense at a really middle manager team level, which is how is this going to help me be better uh, a team member? How is it going to make help my team be more successful at whether it is performance initiatives, whether it is in productivity, whether it is sales, whatever it's going to be, how is this going to help me be successful as a team member because at the end of the day there's probably some goals that i have on my um on my performance review that relate to my bonus my pay my advancement so i've got to try to connect it there um and then we say um you know what does this mean at the macro level meaning is it clear to everybody why is the organization doing this um how is this going to help the organization be successful uh increase their uh sustainability now sometimes we have to change their thinking around what success looks like um, however, you still do have to connect it to, uh, even with a more um, educated, um, a more fair definition of success, how does this work connect to it? So one of the things that the people will get from the book is how I, how I, um, how I develop and, and sort of implement this level theory at a macro, meso, and micro level so that there's sustainable success in um, equity and justice work. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Sama, for your chapter, what are you helping people walk away with? Or what, what should they be able to do with that info? I think for me, it's the how people read the chapter that's going to be super important. I think a lot of organizations are always going to be collecting data at some capacity one way or another because data is everyone's life and information. Uh, but really thinking critically of, hey, here are some practices that center justice. Am I feeling a resistance towards these things and why as I read it? Or am I making excuses for myself like, oh, we already do that? Or, oh, it's not going to work because we're an X amount of people at our organization. Um, or, oh, like our CEOs are never going to want to do that. But really thinking critically of, hey, how can we make this a value of what success is, as Kevin said, at a higher level and for yourself. For example, even thinking, oh, an employee complaint. Framing that as, is it an employee complaint or is it actually data that we can mm. use valuable? And even a small shift like that can make a huge difference um, for an organization. Oh, for sure. I hope they do walk away with those insights. I mean, just it is that is helpful, those little shifts. I mean, Kevin, so you were talking about, you know, being, you know, how we have to take care of ourselves too on that level. So, you know, one of the questions we like to ask everybody on the podcast is like, you know, what tools do you use to fill your cup? Um, you know, just how do you take care of yourself so that this work is sustainable? Yeah, I mean, it's, so some of this is uh, is basic, uh, but some of it is is more advanced, you know, as Thermo knows as we've done. So the basic stuff is you know what, am I shutting down at a good time in the evening so I get a good enough sleep? You know, um, am I um, 
feeding my body food that gives me energy and nourishes me because what I eat in my sleep relates to my creativity, my ability to respond with good ideas and connect with people and, and just be open and be patient, which this work does. Am I getting enough exercise to get some energy, lower stress? People, people know that. Um, people know that it's important. They don't always connect it to this work. Um, and one of the things that we've talked about is you do need to connect it to this work at the micro level. Uh, we're also doing a lot of things in terms of um, neurofeedback and, and how do we mm. sort of, um, how do we train our brains um, to be what we call um, really non-anxious affirming um, and empathetic presence when we do this work. Uh, so we'll do some of that. You know, I do um, heart rate variability, um, you know, where I'll get a sort of a, a ding. You know, I'll, I'll have a, a, a sense of that, you know, all of a sudden I'm, I'm at a place where maybe I can't be objective, um, where I can't I'll stop maybe the ability to listen because I'm starting to get anxious. Uh, and, and, and we're, hey, I'm not saying I perfected that and Dharma knows I haven't perfected that, <laughs> but, but, we know, but we know it's important to this work. So we're trying to do basic things as well as really advanced things um, to, to know, because we know this is, you know, emotional, um, potentially polarizing, anxious, stressful work. And you've got to be ready and help other people be ready at the micro level. I'm always such a fan of Kevin's uh, <laughs> new tools and gadgets uh, because similar to him, one of my reasons of even being in this space is for health and wellness. Mm -hmm. So um, anything I can do for my personal life, it looks a lot like surrounding myself with friends, family and making intentional time to uh, get out in nature, hike, do all of that. I really like traveling. I Some people feel like their worst personalities come out when they travel, but I really think <laughs> I'm better when I'm traveling. Uh, and so I find a lot of joy in that. Um, and then a lot of board games. That's a way that I fill my cup up as well. So, um, and food. Oh, Lots yeah. It but, sounds like, yeah, a lot of connecting and connecting over food is is perfect, too. So, um, gosh, thank you. But the time flew by. We're almost at the half hour mark now. Um, I hope we can do this again. Um, you know, but in the meantime, just want to thank you both. Thank our listeners. Um, and until next time, continue to reimagine racial justice at work. Thank you very much. Thank you. <laughs>